because becoming Miss America, yes, I now have access to this incredible platform and this incredible network of hundreds of thousands of followers and people that I get to work with on a daily basis, which is great because my number one goal, my number one mission, this has been clear to the organization. This has been clear from the day that I interviewed for the job of Miss America. I want to promote nuclear energy. I want to talk about zero carbon energy. Welcome to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue, and joining us on the show today is Miss America, who just so happens to also be a nuclear engineering student. Join us as we explore the power of nuclear energy, its misconceptions, and its potential as a clean energy solution. As Miss America, Grace Stanky has championed the social impact initiative, Clean Energy, Cleaner Future, as she works to change public perceptions and empower young girls in STEM fields. As we explore the fascinating world of clean energy, we delve into the ambitious Plant Vogel project in Georgia, the nation's first nuclear expansion project in three decades. Tune in for insights on nuclear expansion, sustainability, and valuable advice for a greener future. If you open up social media, you will see that cinema is buzzing right now with the release of the movies Barbie and Oppenheimer. To the naked eye, the two films could not be more different, as Oppenheimer is about the creation of the atomic bomb, whereas Barbie is based on the Barbie fashion dolls by Mattel. In a world where the two could not be more different, social media continues to bring the two together with the Barbenheimer trend. But imagine if there was a world where Barbenheimer described a real person, say a nuclear engineering student that also held the title of Miss America. Our guest on the Green Hour today is this very person. Grace Stanky is Miss America 2023 and a nuclear engineering student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. But that's not all. Grace is also a classical violinist and a Division I water skier. If you ask me, Barbenheimer is not a strong enough term to describe Grace. Grace has earned more than $68,000 in scholarship assistance through her state and Miss America competitions. During her year as Miss America, Grace is traveling the country using her national platform to advocate for clean energy, cleaner future, encouraging worldwide change for clean, zero-carbon emission energy sources. Stanky emphasizes the benefits of nuclear power and seeks to dispel the myths around nuclear energy while inspiring the next generation of female scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. Nuclear energy remains a hot topic in our world today, heralded as one of the cleanest energy sources due to its zero carbon emissions and high level production capacity. As global populations surge, energy demands intensify and traditional sources strain. Nuclear power stands as a promising solution to combat increasing emission rates and secure a sustainable energy future. 
In my home state of Georgia, Plant Vogel made history as the first nuclear reactor in three decades to achieve full operational status. Despite facing criticism for cost overruns and delays, Vogel offers a valuable case study on large nuclear reactor projects in the U.S. However, the future of energy might not lie in facilities like Plant Vogel, but rather in smaller modular reactors, compact enough to fit on a football field, which could revolutionize the energy landscape. Nuclear is cleaner, more efficient, and the key to the future. The challenge lies in convincing the rest of the world about its potential, dispelling misconceptions, and fostering public support to embrace this transformative solution for a sustainable tomorrow. But Grace, uh, thank you so much for joining us. This is uh, a conversation I'm extremely excited about. Ever since I, I heard you talk at the ACC Summit in Salt Lake City, um, I, I wanted you to come on the podcast, but I know how busy you are. Um, so this is a really big moment for me. Um, so just thank you so much again for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. It's always fun doing things like this. And you know what it's all about? Starting the conversation around nuclear. That's my mission. So this is another place to do that. I mean, a lot of people know you as Miss America and a lot of people know you as a nuclear engineering student um, and even a classic violinist. But if we go all the way back to your childhood um, in Wisconsin, um, I, I want to know how your upbringing really dictated um, your success that you're that you're seeing now. So can you talk about yeah. you know, growing up in Wisconsin and um, your journey from the very um, early get going? Yeah, for sure. One of the things I have really learned in the past like six to eight months, I'd say, about my childhood that shaped me to be who I am today, uh, I was never a person to back down from a challenge. And that is definitely very much so still true to this day where I see a challenge and I want to take it on. Uh, and that was evident literally from a young age up until t now, I guess. It's something that I kind of chuckle looking back on. I was always very academically driven. Um, throughout elementary school, I was in sort of the, the gifted and talented classes. And I, as I got into middle school, I realized I wanted to be really trying in my classes. I didn't want to just show up and get an A. I wanted to actually be trying and thinking and be challenged in the courses. So I wasn't finding that at the level I was at once I got into middle school, went to administrators and was like, hey, well, you know, what can we do about this? And there's this wonderful little thing called the Common Core that doesn't really yet you, let you uh, pick and choose. So the only way I could really move ahead was to try and skip a grade. So I took the tests. I sat down for like three days and just took a bunch of exams um, and ended up, I actually scored well enough to skip two grades. But the thing that stopped me was I didn't want to graduate high school a month after getting my driver's license. That was the breaking point for me. Uh, <laughs> so I only went with one grade, oddly enough. Um, and I, I ended up doing sixth and seventh in one year then, where I, I kind of started out in sixth, and it took about a quarter and a half to get through sort of the administrative process. Uh, then a quarter and a half into the school year, I, I bumped up into seventh. Uh, and then from there, I just kind of kept going where I wasn't finding enough of a challenge in specifically math and science. So I started doubling up in courses. I ended up transferring to a private school because I wasn't able to double up in some courses at a public setting. Um, then I started taking dual enrollment. Like it just kind of kept going. <laughs> and that's something that I think is still evident today where I firmly believe that I want to push myself to my limit. And I think I'm a person that I, if you have a 4.0, in my opinion, 
you're either in too easy of classes or you're not doing enough outside of school. Because I know I'm capable of getting a 4.0 and I could have all throughout college, but I would have just been sitting and studying for all of my classes the entire time versus going through and actually enjoying college and it's okay to not have a 4.0, you know? Still still maintain a good GPA. I'm not saying like fail all your classes, but still maintain a good GPA. <laughs> so our, our schooling is, is similar and um, different in many ways. <laughs> When I was in middle school, um, I went to a private school, and I was actually held back in the seventh grade for sports. Uh, a lot of a lot of us did this. Um, a lot of us did this to get held back. I don't know if that's a thing in private schools that people do, but you get held back in like sixth or seventh grade, so you have an extra year, um, and you're older, and um, when you're in high school for, for sports. Interesting. Um, so I did that. Yeah. So so I did that, and then I ended up transferring to a public school in high school, and similar yeah. to you, I, I enrolled in these schools in the pub, I mean, these classes in the public school. And I was like, wow, I'm just answering and turning in my work so much faster. I'm just kind of sitting around not doing anything. So I did dual enrollment from sophomore year on. And I, I completed about the same as you did about two years of college and in high yeah. school, which was the best, the best thing. Because once yeah. I got into college, I graduated in two years. Um, mm-hmm. And then I got my MBA in, in one year. So while it took all my friends four years to get their bachelor's, it took me three years to get two degrees. Yeah. So doing Roman is this incredible thing. Um, and, you know, the, the question that I, that I would ask you, Grace, is um, looking at schooling, what is the importance of STEM education in schools? Because for me, um, I, I went to a school in North Georgia, and we did yeah. not have any, any um, education around STEM. And I wish we would have. Um, just because I think it's very important, and obviously in nuclear and, and, and nuclear science, but what, what would you say the, the importance of STEM is in school? You know, I, I think about this a lot in a sense, because I think about the things that make me the engineer I am today and the person I am today, and a lot of it is not necessarily fully STEM stuff, right? I, I don't think it's right to have an education of purely just STEM classes with a focus on just STEM and only STEM, because that's not making a well-rounded individual to have different perspectives and different uh, points of view to look at a problem and figure out how to solve it best. I am forever thankful for learning violin and learning how to fail over and over and over again. That's something that I would never learn in a math class. Um, but I think I think when it comes to STEM classes and different exposure going into college, I honestly had little to no idea what I actually wanted to major in. I knew I wanted to do engineering. I knew I wanted to do something, you know, where I felt like I was making a difference. That's really all I knew. And the only reason I had selected nuclear is out of spite because I thought it sounded really cool. And my dad told me, don't go into it. There's no future there. Uh, So 16, 17 year old me kind of was like, okay, screw you. I'm going to go into this then. So there wasn't a logical reason to start in nuclear. And, And there's a reason I stayed in nuclear that's more like, insightful. But um, that's something that I think throughout high school, I would have appreciated personally. I'm a very hands-on learner. I would have loved more hands-on things. I would have loved more labs. That was my favorite part in dual enrollment. I did chem and physics through dual enrollment um, in high school, and I loved the labs. I loved having that opportunity. And I wish every other student would have that opportunity throughout high school. Um, I, I, I think every high school is different. I'm learning in terms of what access they have to equipment and to resources to make that sort of stuff happen. But I think the hands-on learning and being able to visually see something would be incredible because 
from high school and knowing I liked physics more than chem and then going into nuclear and then all the way up to the first time I saw a nuclear power plant, the first time I saw a nuclear power plant myself, I mean, I was like, I'm, I'm in, I'm in. Uh, and that was, and that was it. So uh, that's something I wish that high schools did a little bit more of was bring in people that are in the industry, get some hands on experience, you know, do some work, whether it's in the classroom or take the kids to a facility that is doing that work. Um, j- just through some research I-, I had seen, I mean, y- you alluded to it right there about when you're going into college, you're looking at, what type of engineering do you want to go into? Um, and, and talking to your father, you said, how about nuclear? And he was like, no, there's, there's no yeah. future in nuclear. Like let, find something that you can build, build a career in. And what I, what I researched and what I saw was um, nuclear medicine actually helped your dad in, yeah. in his cancer. So it's almost, it, this is like a full circle moment of, of going back to you choosing to go nuclear um, engineering and then nuclear medicine actually helping your dad in the long run. That's that's just kind of yeah. wild to me. Yeah, you know, that's what I always sit here and I'm like, man, I could have had such a cool inspirational story as to how I got into nuclear by being like, yeah, it saved my dad's life twice from cancer. Because when I had that conversation, he was in recovery. He was in remission and like is completely fine. He's happy, healthy, and also very pro-nuclear today. Uh, but at that time when we were having that conversation, when I was looking at going into college, you know, I had no idea nuclear medicine was a part of his treatments. I knew radiation was it, but I'm like, that's all I knew. I didn't realize to the extent that it was involved. And that's one of the many reasons why, you know, I mentioned earlier why I chose to stay in the nuclear industry. I always say the reason I got into it and the reason I chose to stay is two different things. Choosing to stay in it was because one, I found that I was I was personally challenged in a sense where I wake up and I do something different every single day. I love to learn. I'm a very curious person. And the nuclear industry isn't just one type of work. When I've been working in it, it's it's some days I was working on a mechanical problem. Some days I was working on coding. Some days I was working on a circuit board. Some days I was working on a water coolant system. Like It's a very big culmination of all this awesome engineering that comes together. And that's what I just truly love about this industry is it's something different every day. And you've got to know a little bit of everything. I, I love the phrase like a mile wide, an inch deep. That's pretty much what I would say the general nuclear engineer's knowledge has to be, which is really fun for me uh, on a personal fulfillment And then two, the other thing that kept me in it, I realized it's all around us. Like nuclear is literally all around us. If you've got granite countertops, if you ate a banana recently, uh, if you've got smoke detectors in your home, exit signs when you're walking through the red glowing exit signs, when you're walking through all of those public buildings, or if you live in an apartment building, uh, it's literally radiological isotopes are everywhere in our daily lives. And it proves to be even more part of our lives when you really start to notice it. I think a lot of people just think of nuclear as as these big nuclear bombs. You know, Oppenheimer, the movie just came yeah. out, and that's that's another depiction of what nuclear is. And they don't understand that, like you're saying, nuclear um, medicine, nuclear, you know, there's nuclear in, in almost everything that we're, we're around yeah. on a daily basis. So actually, I want to interrupt there, because I will oh. say that I think that that mentality of weaponry, one thing I've learned throughout my advocacy work and everything um, the the weaponry mentality is really only with the older generation, with people from my parents and up, I'd say. So mid forties and up, uh, younger generations, especially Gen Z. When I talk about nuclear, 
their first thought is climate change. Their first thought is to think about power sources and energy and electricity, which is really exciting. And I, I firmly believe that right now we're in a point in society that Gen Z is starting to take on leadership roles. It's starting to enter the workforce and become a part of it. And that's why we're seeing such a major shift in the nuclear world that we are seeing right now. Yeah, I mean, I talk I talk about from a business perspective all the time, you have the millennials and Gen Z entering uh, entering the workforce. Mm-hmm. Gen Z is and, and the millennials are going to be the people that are purchasing houses. And that's going to be the large percentage of the marketplace. And for businesses, it's like you really need to focus on sustainability in your products. What can you do you know, for the environment? And exactly what you're saying with nuclear, I mean, Gen Z especially. I mean, I'm Gen Z. Um, I'm, millennials are, are similar. But Gen Z especially notices that, okay, we're using up our resources. Nuclear is the cleanest form of energy we can have. It's going to make our energy bills cheaper. Um, so, so why can't we produce more of this, right? Because as we build families... Um, And as we continue to build civilization as we know it, we're going to need something to prolong the human race. So it's it's all very interesting. But I mean, like you said, older generations, they they look at um, instances like Three Mile Island, uh, Fukushima, Chernobyl. And that's that's the one depiction that they have of nuclear. And the the reality is that those are three disasters that all happened for one reason, right? Of, mm-hmm. of overheating and, and one specific thing. And that happened years and years and years ago. Technology has evolved so much over time that we're now at a point that, you know, we can see when these things are happening and, and really find solutions, you yeah. know, before the disaster happens. But but looking at looking at your schooling at University of Wisconsin, Grace, are you graduating? Is is this correct? You're graduating this summer? Yeah, so it's really, it's it's very strange because I walked in the spring because I wanted to walk with my friends. I was supposed to graduate this spring. Um, and so I did the whole celebration and everything like that. But because of Miss America being a full-time job, uh, it's I've done about 90,000 miles of travel in the past six, seven months here. And it's continuing to count, you know, just I was in Phoenix yesterday morning, I left at 3am. And then I was in a water ski show last night. Like it's, it's such a big variety of things that um, school kind of does have to to slow down at least. So that last spring semester, I've just spread out throughout the entire calendar year of 2023. Uh, I'm in two classes right now over the summer, I was in two this spring, and then I have one in the fall, and then I'm completely, completely done. And I'm so excited for that day. Uh, I did celebrate in the spring, but I will celebrate when I'm done in the fall too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested to, to, to see how you balance all of this because you were going through the Miss America competition and now, you know, as Miss America, you have all, all of this stuff that you have to do, but you're also a full-time student or a, a nuclear engineering part-time. student. And then you're, yeah. Part-time. And then yeah. you're also on the water ski team at University of Wisconsin. So, well, so water ski, I don't, I'm not skiing competitively with them right now. Um, last fall, I had to kind of step back from the team just because of other commitments that I had going on. I did ski for three years from my freshman year all the way up through my junior year. Junior year, I was skiing Division One with them down at Nationals and everything. And it was such a blast. And I love the team dearly. I do spend a lot of time with them. Uh, some of them are my best friends, you know, that I still see to this day now that we're all kind of moving into this post-graduation world uh, and we're all moving on with our lives. It's weird. Growing up is strange, but, (laughs) um, so I, the stuff I've been doing this summer is show skiing, which is slightly different. uh, And it's really, if I have time, I'll help, you know, bring awareness to the sport and talk about how awesome it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Going from schooling to Miss America, I mean, I grew up, I'm, I'm the youngest of three. I've got two older sisters. So I grew up watching Miss America competitions um, with, with my sisters and, and watching it, watching basically all of the stuff. So, you know, I, just personally, I want to understand more of um, your involvement with the Miss America organization and really your journey to becoming Miss America. I mean, again, from research, it looks like you were involved with the Miss America organization for years and years and years of your life. So um, could you start yeah. off by talking about the beginning of, of your relationship with the organization and how that progressed? Yeah, I got involved in 2016 was the first year I competed in the Miss America's teen program. So I was 13 years old. Uh, you had mentioned earlier, I'm a, I'm a classical violinist and I was looking for more performance opportunities because I was not a good performer. I would forget my music. I would shake everything that could go wrong went wrong. So I really wanted some different opportunities to get up on a stage in front of people and to just get used to performing. And I found the Miss America's teen program and I, I fell in love with it from there. You know, I, I was someone who based off of my academics growing up and everything, I never fully fit in with, with kids. I had friends, yes, but there was always still, I think some intimidation, um, or potentially jealousy. I don't know. It's, it was something that I never felt good. Um, and the Miss America organization and the teen organization was a place where I felt like it was cool to be successful. It was cool to be ambitious. It was cool to be supportive and kind and loving and caring. And the women that I met were just incredible. Additionally, it is, it is a scholarship organization. So I was earning money towards, towards my dual enrollment courses and a college education. Um, and it just kind of continued from there where I, I enjoyed what the organization does. I competed for two years in the teen program. And then I had about two to three years off to grow up and like live a life a little bit. <laughs> and I came back as a miss once I got into college and realized how expensive full-time college is. Um, and, uh, you know, I competed for two years there and now here I am. What, what's really interesting and what I, what I love about your story, Grace, is you're using your platform as Miss America to promote something like <laughs> nuclear something like zero carbon energy. Um, and you're using this, this massive platform you have to educate people. Um, and for one of those people is me, because nuclear is this topic I know um, very little about. Um, I'd, I'd like to know more, but you know, listening to you, listening to your interviews, listening to you at the summit, you make it very, you talk about nuclear in a very simple way that I can understand. And that I feel mm -hmm. like a lot of people in our generation and Gen Z can understand. So um, having someone like yourself, to speak on a topic like nuclear is just massive. So, um, you know, what would you say the importance, well, I don't know if I'd say importance, but I guess I'd ask, you know, how being crowned Miss America has given you a platform to really promote um, your passion for zero carbon energy and really bring about this education around this topic? This is something I've actually given a lot of thought to, you know, how much did becoming Miss America change the trajectory of my life? Uh, how much do I want it to change the trajectory of my life is also a, a very valid question. Um, because becoming Miss America, yes, I now have access to this incredible platform and this incredible network of hundreds of thousands of followers and people that I get to work with on a daily basis, which is great because my number one goal, my number one mission, this has been clear to the organization. This has been clear from the day that I interviewed for the job of Miss America 
I want to promote nuclear energy. I want to talk about zero carbon energy. This is something that I'm so passionate about, right? To the point that that's what I want my career to be as well. Um, you know, I don't know what my career fully would have looked like had I not become Miss America. I was kind of starting to plan out my life right before Miss America uh, because I was, you know, you never plan on becoming Miss America. I don't think anybody does. <laughs> so I went into the competition where I was like, I want to have a full-time job already set up. I was, you know, it's July 26th. I actually think I was supposed to be starting that full-time job uh, tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken, I have to double check that I was going to be moving to Phoenix and working in a nuclear power plant and just doing engineering work. Right. Um, and I was so excited for that. And I was looking forward to it and becoming Miss America has changed the conversation about what I'll do afterwards. Right. I think there are many different routes I could take with this, but I still love engineering and I still want to do some engineering. Um, so I looking at a post Miss America life right now, I'm looking at a hybrid role with engineering and advocacy work still, whether it's focusing on policy or outreach things is still something that's to be determined depending on the company and where I end up. Um, but it's something that really has been tremendous because I never in my life would have ever imagined Miss America being a nuclear engineer, right? Let Just being an engineer, period. I just feel like that's not something that's really talked about or something that's publicized if it has happened before. I genuinely don't even know if it has happened before. Yes. We've had the past two years, the two Miss Americas before me have been awesome. Um, and, you know, all Miss Americas are amazing. Let me also state that. They are all incredible, powerful, and admirable women. Uh, Emma Broyles, the one before me, she's going to go to school and be a dermatologist, right? She's in her undergrad right now. Prior to that, we had Camille Schreier, who she's just finishing up. She just finished up pharmacy school, so she's going to be a pharmacist. And that was really exciting for me as someone who was just getting into college to see young women doing incredible things within the STEM field and to let them see that, okay, you can be Miss America, which is traditionally not exactly a, 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 a STEM role, you know, in a sense, you can have Miss America and she can be an engineer and she can be a water skier and a violinist, all of those things, which is just really incredible to me. I mean, I would say that you're really breaking a lot of barriers um, in, in what you're doing. I mean, with, with Miss America, like you said, when I first came across um, you in the entire competition and, and you winning Miss America, um, I remember thinking, wow, nuclear engineering and Miss America coming together. Th this is wild. <laughs> it's like it's like right now it would be like Oppenheimer and, and Barbie coming together as one. Right? <laughs> I've, been, I've been called. Have you seen the tweets and stuff and everything? Oh, about yeah. that? I was going to say, I mean, like, that's the weirdest thing right now because I'm still a normal human being. Right. And now like CNN International was like, hey, can we do an interview with you? You're the real Barbenheimer. And I'm like, OK, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> did you did you end up doing it? I did that last week. I did one with BBC International and one with CNN International. Yeah. I've got a couple more like um, smaller media interviews this week then as well about it. So I actually I still yeah. have to go see both of the movies. It's on my list. Oh, I just yeah. the past couple of days have been so chaotic. So I think I think I'm going to try and get to Oppenheimer tomorrow. And I'm trying to decide if I want to just like do a double and just do, you do the full day. The full I, day really, right? I really feel like if I'm going to do it, I'm going to commit to seeing them both right away. And I really yeah. want to see Oppenheimer first, just because I'm really like set on that. And I, I, 
I'm really excited for it. Now it's all over my TikTok feed and now I'm like determined to see it in the next two days, but it's okay. (laughs) The memes over like the past two months, the memes about Barbie and Oppenheimer coming together. It's been been the best part of Twitter, I feel like. Uh, And then like like you said, I I came across on on Twitter, people tweeting at you saying, oh, it's a real Barbenheimer. Um, We've got to get you at the, the, you know, the the release. You've got to come, all this Mm -hmm. stuff. yeah, very very interesting. Uh, but again, I mean, you're you're paving paving this path for for women in STEM, which is a really, which is a really big thing. I, I feel like when I think of engineers and specifically nuclear engineers, you know, women. I I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know the percentage, but I would say probably there's 14. a higher percentage of men than women. Yeah, correct. Fourteen percent of the nuclear industry are women. It's a very small percentage. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So not only breaking barriers by using your platform as Miss America in the nuclear world, but also breaking barriers as a nuclear engineer, as a woman. Mm-hmm. So this is this is something that you're doing that's incredible. And, you know, I just want to say, like, it's it's really powerful what you're doing. And who knows? Who knows what the future will hold? But um, I think that anyone that's working in nuclear right now, the industry is only going to continue to grow. And we're going to need more and more people like yourself, um, highly talented people, Male and female, not not just male, yeah. like it's like it seems well, to be. And that's, and that's something that I want to kind of pause to talk about too. Um, Miss America likes to kind of market me in a sense as this, you know, champion for specifically women in STEM. Which I think that I'm yes a role model for women in STEM, but in no ways do I target a little girl and only little girls to pursue STEM careers. What I really focus on, if I'm in a classroom full of kids, I talk to them, what makes them excited? What brings them joy in life, right? Let's first start with that conversation. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you look like. I don't care what you do in your spare time. Does this, does what brings you joy? And then let's find a place for you in the nuclear industry or in whatever you're passionate about. You know, I found that Right now, yes, I'm going to go into engineering, but I'm really passionate about communication too. And we need communicators in the nuclear world. We need marketing professionals. We need politicians. We need so many different people that is more than just engineers. And I think that's one thing that when when I talk about you know, recruiting people into STEM, it's not just recruiting more engineers, it's helping people find their passions and helping them find a role in a place that they feel included, that they feel welcome and that they're excited to serve that. And honestly, I think STEM is pretty much everywhere. I look at, like like I said, even with my violin, a lot of what I do does tie back into science and technology and engineering. I got an electric violin, and that's obviously a whole nother level of like technology there. But it's something that is, it's really all around us. It's about finding a place for people that one, they love their job, they're excited to go to work, and they feel fulfilled in their life, because I think that that's what makes a successful career is, does it bring you joy? And then from there, let's find a place in the in this, in the field overall. Yeah, I want to touch on that point where you're talking about, you know, do you, do you feel fulfilled in your career? A lot of people ask me all the time. I mean, ever since I created the podcast, ever since I, I started working in sustainability, people are like, you know, why sustainability? You know, what, what, why, why do you have such a big passion in, in sustainability? And I'm like, well, imagine you go to work every day and you do work that can change the world, that can change literally the future, the future generations. I mean, who doesn't want that? I mean, I, I could go and push paper every day at a, at a job and, and just make a paycheck. But if I can do work, that's going to really try to solve some of our world's issues. Nuclear yeah. is solving one of the 
biggest issues that we have in energy right now, then, then why not do that? There, there's so much fulfillment that comes in a career where you can make a difference. And so, yeah, so yeah I, I definitely, definitely agree this, to that. Yeah. This is sorry to like keep going on this, but one of the things that I've really found myself doing as, as Miss America, and this was really unexpected. It showed up after I became Miss America. All of these nuclear companies were booking me. Well, I don't need to teach them about nuclear. I don't need to like recruit them. So that whole like aspect of my social impact is already accomplished, right? So I was trying to figure out what what do I talk to these nuclear companies about? Uh, and, and there are two main things. One is how they themselves can be advocates, but the second is workforce development. Right now, within the nuclear industry, our average age of reactor operators is over 40, which is insane because that means we're about to lose two-thirds of our workforce in the next 20 years. That's, that's a lot of people. It, that's just for reactor operators, but it does apply to a lot of the other things in the, in the engineering uh, world within the nuclear industry, just because it is an aging workforce. And for a while, Fukushima happened, Three Mile Island happened, there wasn't people going into this. Uh, and now we're seeing that shift where class sizes are growing again. But how do we recruit people? And the one thing that I find really fascinating that I've definitely seen, and you just talked about it too, Gen Z is so much more mission oriented than we are salary oriented in a sense. It's about more than just coming home and putting food on the table. It's about actually making a difference. And that is what's so exciting. Even myself, when I'm going through job negotiations and things like that throughout this year, I'm like, I'm willing to take a massive pay cut if I care about what that company is doing a lot more. And I, I just think that's a really tremendous thing that has forced a lot of a lot of companies to shift their culture to be mission driven uh, rather than just purely goal oriented and and things like that, which is so exciting to see that change in company cultures. Yeah, I mean, you talk about workforce development. Um, where I went to high school, it was a public school, but in Georgia, the state of Georgia, we had, I don't know if this was just my school, but I think it's statewide. We had career pathways. So to graduate, you know, in, in the high school, you had to complete a pathway. So we had, you know, I was in marketing. I was in the marketing pathway. That was the only business pathway. They had cosmetology. Mm -hmm. They had culinary, health, healthcare science, um, then ag science, a lot of different things, um, yeah. law and public safety. But as I started doing more research this year, I was like, why, why can't we create a pathway you know, around, around sustainability. I, it could be nuclear. It could be, you know, oh, it could whatever. Be so right? many things. So sustainability, many things. one of, one of my best friends in college, she was an interior architecture major, right? Totally uh, unrelated to nuclear and energy yeah. and everything like that. And the conversations we would have about sustainability and how you can just do it in, in the, the way you design a building is just insane. It's, it's, there are so many different applications when it comes to sustainability because that's a super broad category where it ranges from, okay, manufacturing and then energy production and then actual construction itself. And then, okay, lifestyle long-term, how is this building going to be used? You know, is this, this hallway set up? I don't really fully know interior architecture right. things, but like all those lead certifications and stuff like right. that. I don't, I, I can get her on the podcast if you want to, yeah. but something that's, it's really awesome because there's so many crossovers between things that you don't expect. Yeah. Yeah. So, so funny enough Friday. So what's today, Wednesday. So in two days I'm talking to 
um, someone who works at the Candida building at Georgia Tech, which is one of the oh. only living buildings in, in the yeah. U.S., um, which is, I mean, it's just remarkable. I was there a few weeks ago and just walking the grounds. I mean, this yeah. this building produces more energy than they take. Everything from the water in the bathrooms is used in the garden and everything's yeah. just very circular. So, I mean, it's people are so smart. Um, and, and like you're saying, sustainability is so broad that it it touches almost every industry. I mean, I'm I'm about to start working at a flooring company um, and sustainability in the flooring company is there's so much with that as well that y- you would not even know. But back to back to the pathways, I'm like, we have to educate children, not even children. I mean, as they grow up in high school and, and even in college to learn about these topics, because like we said, I mean, what you're doing advocating for nuclear is, is really big. I mean, that's that's something that people need to know about our generation and, and generations below us. They need to understand the topic because this is the future. Um, and I guess I would ask you, Grace, is when you're speaking to, let's say, people in Gen Z and younger, you know, how do you present nuclear? Uh, because, you know, it can be a complex topic. It can be a topic that some people might be scared of that yeah. they don't know a lot about. So, you know, how do you present nuclear to to these people? A lot of it comes down to, first of all, what the audience already knows. In a scenario where at the ACC summit, I'm like, okay, these people already have some background knowledge. Um, But when it comes to people that they hear the word nuclear and that's pretty much all they know is they're like, okay, I know it's a power plant. I know it was in World War II and I know it's in some cancer treatments, right? And that's what I'd say most people are at. You know, if they're curious about learning the scientific processes, when I talk about fission, which is what happens in nuclear power plants today, uh, that's what's powering 20% of America right now. Fission is that that reaction. And that's the breaking apart of atoms. So atoms are what make up every single thing in this universe, super tiny, tiny little things. Um, And when atoms get slightly unbalanced, some of them want to decay. So in that sense, I I like to talk about it like you're taking a bite out of a muffin. There has to be, first of all, one, an external force that causes this to happen. Um, And in this case, it's you taking the bite out of a muffin, right? So when you take a bite out of a muffin, it splits into two pieces, right? Where you've got a piece in your mouth that's oh so delicious. um, And then you've got the, the rest of the muffin that you'll eat in a bit. But there's also crumbs on the table and the crumbs on the table is what's used in a nuclear power plant to create that heat because those crumbs, which in this case, it's, it's neutrons. It's things that are kind of flying around after an atom has decayed into two separate new types of isotopes. Those crumbs are what create heat. That's what has energy that we're going to use to turn into electricity. So that's like the, the nuclear fission 101 that I use. Um, And it helps with, people from kindergartners all the way up to politicians and and everyone in between to help educate people about what it is. So that's one of the one of the sort of tricks of the the trade that I yeah. use to talk about nuclear. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean you, you taking a taking a topic again that if I had a scientist on like a like, a, like an old scientist maybe in their 50s yeah. or 60s they could break it down very in a very complex manner and that I wouldn't understand. But that analogy mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. I mean it it, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. Also, I'm just going to kind of continue off of it here, too. Um, I think power plant basics is also something that a lot of people are curious about. When I say we take that energy and turn it into electricity, all is what's happening there. And this is what happens in fossil fuel plants, actually, as well. You take that energy, that heat, whatever it is, 
and you just heat up water and make steam. And now I, I do this experiment with little kids to help them visualize it. I take a tea kettle and I turn on the tea kettle, heat it up. You know, if you've got a hot plate, it's great. Cause I always am like, that's just fancy hot rocks. Cause that's also what nuclear fission is. Right. Um, that's one of the, one of another advocate says that a lot. And I'm like, I love that. She's like, it's just fancy hot rocks. That's also what uranium is. Um, yeah. And so you heat up this tea kettle and you know how you have like a spot where a a concentrated steam comes out, take a little windmill from when you were a kid, like one of the shiny little windmills that you'd stick in your yard and just hold it above that steam column. That's exactly how a power plant works. We just make steam. It turns a turbine. So something that's spinning and then that spinning is what actually creates that electricity. That's always what that translation is from heat into power. Um, So it's something that that basic reaction is happening at a ton of different types of power production. The important thing is to address where is that heat coming from? Because fossil fuels, you are burning. You've got a lot of other side effects. You've got a lot of other side and wasteful products that are put into the air that they're not even managing. Within nuclear, yes, we have nuclear waste at the end of the day when this, this fuel is done fissioning but we know how to manage it. We know where every single piece of nuclear waste is in America. And that is something that no other type of energy production industry can do, say. Right. So I, I mean, a tangent you, there, sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> right. really good. Um, but you, you talked a little bit about the fission process. You talked about, you know, the need, the need for nuclear. I want to dive into that a little bit more to really understand, you know, why, why not just in the U S not just you know in in our world where we're living today, but in the future, the, the need for clean energy and a solution like nuclear that, like we said, there's it's zero carbon um, energy. So, I guess I would ask you, why do we need something like nuclear um, as you know we continue to progress in civilization um, and continue to to reproduce? I mean, as population continues to grow more and more we're going to need more energy sources because yeah. fossil fuels can only last for a certain amount of time. So um, what would you yeah. say, you know, why, why do we need something like, like nuclear and, and, and clean energy? So I'm going to make the broad blanket assumption that the listener and people listening to my following statements here are going to agree that we need to move to zero carbon energy, whether that's because of climate change, whether that's because we're genuinely running out of fossil fuels, whether that's, you know, whatever reason it might be. Um, The broad statement is that we need to move to zero carbon energy. Of the options we have for zero carbon energy sources, nuclear is the only one that is always on. That is the biggest argument for nuclear moving forward. When we have a baseload source of power, when it's hot in summer like this right now, and we have the highest demands for cooling across America as of today, We need power that is on that we are not going to have to worry about shutting off. And unfortunately, solar and wind doesn't cut that. It is not always reliable. It's not. It it depends on its outside environment. Nuclear, we can tell it when to turn on. We can tell it, hey, we need more power and we can get more power. And that's something that is so stand aside from the nuclear industry. You know, I'd say I'd say hydroelectric. is always on, but you don't have the same form of being able to say, okay, it's time, it's time that we, we got to step up the power production here a little bit. Nuclear, we have that capability. In addition, you, we t- you had mentioned population is growing. 
Another necessity to a larger population is the need for farmland. I'm from Wisconsin. I, it's a huge agricultural state. We rely a lot on our dairy, on our cranberries, on our ginseng, on everything like that to not only fuel our state's economy, but also to feed American people, right? If you replace those farm fields with solar panels, with wind turbines, everything like that, we're losing valuable farmland. Nuclear power, you are producing enough power for entire cities just on like anywhere from four to 40 acres of land, depending on the the plant design, which is incredibly small. Uh, That's something that I highly, highly recommend to help kind of illustrate that further. Uh, Find a a nuclear now showing Oliver Stone did a documentary on nuclear power and it's, it's called nuclear. Now you can actually watch it on Apple TV too. I just learned recently. So let's go. Um, And that really illustrates the immense power density that nuclear power has as we continue to have that growing population and the growing need for zero carbon we also need a baseload source of power. And nuclear is one of the only forms of electricity that can serve as that baseload source of power for year-round electricity. You talk about nuclear as, as the source of always being on and, and how important that is. I was in I was in Hawaii last week, um, incredible Ooh, time in Oahu. Yeah, it was, it was a really good time. And I got frustrated because I was in an Uber. Um, North Shore um, is really where um, the locals are and it's where all the beaches are. And and I was in an Uber with a few guys from Europe. And the Uber driver were driving by these massive wind turbines. I mean, massive, massive. And and they're just filling the land. Um, And I was like, wow, this is is really cool that you have wind turbines here. And uh, he just started just just blowing up about it, how it doesn't work, how it's uh, greenwashing, how it's all this stuff. And, you know, wind and solar, I don't know why I brought that up, but I guess I just wanted to, <laughs> to bring okay. that I love up. It. <laughs> but but wind, wind and solar, um, you talk about always being on, you know, in Texas, I don't know, three or four years ago, you had that big um, disaster where you had all the wind, the wind <laughs> and solar panels that weren't working just because you had this big storm. Um, and you know, that's, that's one issue that you can see with, with these technologies. I, I think there's a lot of innovation in that space. Um, I was actually yeah. at a conference, I think it was two weeks ago. I'm at the Candida building at Georgia tech on solar. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of, a lot of stuff we I, can do. Yeah. I, I do firmly believe that I, I don't believe in a 100% nuclear portfolio. I, what makes a good energy portfolio is a diverse energy portfolio, but the requirements for that baseload source of power so that every single night when we go to plug our phones in, we get power, that baseload source of power does need to be incredibly reliable and incredibly strong, right? And to me, that really, there's only two major zero carbon sources that we can do that with, which is nuclear and hydroelectric. The combination of those two is a very reasonable thing to say to make up 60 to 70% of our power grid to have about 30 and 30 of nuclear and hydroelectric, right? After that, do whatever, you know, I, I firmly support and believe in solar and wind to help create that extra little bit of energy that we need. I think there'll be a lot of development in battery storage and things like that, that will make solar and wind more functional in the long run as well. I think solar and, and wind are also working on their waste management that they have to work on too. Uh, innovation wise, it's, it's happening everywhere, not just in the nuclear world. And it's exciting to see what happens in solar and wind as well. Yeah, so so before we spoke and before we got on this call, and also the first time we spoke at uh, in, in Salt Lake City at the summit, I had mentioned that I had had someone on that talked about thorium as a way of powering uh, nuclear reactors in the future. 
Um, and you know, the conversation I want to get into now is, you know, you're, when you're talking about powering nuclear reactors, you have uranium and you have thorium. Mainly, mm-hmm. it's pretty much all all um, uranium right now. But I would ask you, you know, to get uranium and thorium, you have to be able to do rare earth mining. And this yeah. this topic was a big one. I, I actually had someone on that talked about rare earth mining in the past as well. But I just want to ask you, I mean, and from your seat um, as a nuclear engineering student and all the uh, research that you've done, how do you see rare earth mining being used to really develop the nuclear industry? Because, I mean, I think in the U.S., if I could be butchering this, but we are importing a lot of, of the um, rare earth mining that yeah. we're using for these nuclear reactors um, and facilities. So, you know, what, what's the importance of rare earth mining and, and how do you see that changing in the future? Yeah, that's something that I think is is one of, the, I would say, the, the struggles right now of the nuclear industry. But in America specifically, we don't do a lot of uranium mining as it is. That's number one as to why we are importing, because other countries are doing it. And why should America start doing it in, in America's politicians' minds, right? Uh, when it comes to the mining industry and everything like that, that's something that it's everywhere. It's going to affect everything. I think that argument can be made for literally almost all types of power production and the the facilities and types of things that we need to create those different materials within within nuclear specifically. The one thing that I have to say is that once you start a nuclear power plant, it runs for two to three years before you have to refuel or before you, well, they refuel once a year right now, but that's more for maintenance and everything. But fuel-wise, you can run each fuel bundle for three to four cycles if you'd like. And that's something that mining-wise, there's no other industry that can compare to the power density, to the effectiveness, to the reliability, to everything that it has to offer in that sense. And I think that the mining industry overall has a lot of innovation that it needs to work on too to help uh, create more sustainable and zero-carbon options. There's a lot of ways where more than just uranium can be used within nuclear. And that's something that's really exciting, talking about thorium, talking about all of these other different types of advanced reactors to create the most sustainable and most, you know, in, in my mind, the perfect thing is is we take a certain amount of material from the earth, but we also give it back in a different form and in a beneficial way that's not harmful. So how can we do that and create that healthy middle is the question. <laughs> So, so as far as innovation goes in nuclear, now what we're seeing is these small modular reactors start to come up. Mm-hmm. And this is really the technology that is, I would say, is going to be the future. I mean, when I talked to the, the guy with Thorium Energy Alliance, he talked about small modular reactors. A lot of research that I've done has been around small modular reactors. So could you briefly, and, and just briefly, yeah. discuss what a small modular reactor is? And, you know, why that's important, um, again, as, we tra- as we're trying to transition into a more nuclear-centric lifestyle, I guess, as a, as a world. Yeah. Yeah, with SMRs is what we all call them, you know, small modular reactors. That's what that stands for. Uh, it's something that's basically take a large-scale reactor that's currently operating in America. And what an SMR is, is it's kind of it broken down into smaller pieces where it's small enough that it can be manufactured in a factory, all of the pieces, and that it can be shipped to the site. One of the construction difficulties within the nuclear industry right now is every single power plant is custom built. 
And that's an incredibly expensive and time-consuming process. SMRs, in theory, are eliminating that because you can just build them in a factory and ship them out to where they need to go after, and then assemble on site there as it is, which is a very, very different world. Uh, they are slightly smaller in terms of power production, but you can put about a dozen of them together and you get the same size of a large light water reactor you know, or multiple reactors that currently exist. And it's, it's something that is really exciting. It's got a lot, so much hype around it in the nuclear world. Um, I'm excited to see where it goes. There's a lot of companies that are designing it right now. We've There's like 80 global startups that are working on this project right now with SMRs. Um, and, you know, I think we're definitely going to start to see it narrow down to only about five or six over the next decade that they'll be the ones building them and actually going through that first experimental process with it. Uh, it's really exciting because it's that opportunity where if you don't need a massive reactor in, near your town, great, you can maybe just build one of these compartments of SMRs, right? You don't need to have all dozen of them stacked there. Uh, and it's it's overall very small land usage. The entire reactor design and power plant design fits in about the size of a football field, which is pretty small oh, wow. in comparison to most other most other types of, of power plant designs. It seems like a, a lot more of a scalable option. I mean, these large reactors, if you're, they're having to be custom every time, mm -hmm. then you're not only talking about a high cost, but a high uh, timeline as well. And that's, the next conversation I want to get into, um, this is in Georgia. So um, yeah. I, I hear the news all the time. I'm, I'm right around it. So when talking about cost and timelines uh -huh. and nuclear, you know, one <laughs> word comes to mind and that's Plant Vogel. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> which is in Georgia, yeah. and it's you know, a lot of people are, are have given nuclear a negative view because they look at a project like Plant Vogel and they're saying, you know, it's seven seven years over timeline. It's sixteen seventeen billion dollars over budget. So <laughs> nuclear is is too expensive. It takes too long. Why should we do this? And uh, you know, it's a conversation to be had. Um, and you know, I I, I want to pick your brain on this. Yeah, um, because I'm sure that you have looked into Plant Vogel and done some research, um, but you know, what are, what are your opinions on Plant Vogel? Um, you know, not, not only not only with the cost overruns and the timeline overruns, but just in general with Plant Vogel because you know it has had some success. It's the first um, nuclear reactor, I think, in I think it was seven to eight years. It's actually really in, in America. It's the first new reactor. It, the, these two reactors are the first new reactors in about thirty years in America. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. so so that's that's wild. But yeah, I mean, I mean, what are your thoughts on Plant Vogel um, and what are your opinions? Yeah, so I've actually, I've been there. I've been, I was in oh, the wow. control room of Unit 3 when they hit 75% power. Oh, um, it awesome. was really, really cool. It was very exciting. Uh, first of all, I want to say that these are huge accomplishments, massive accomplishments. And one of the, the things, you know, I talked about driving into a nuclear power plant for the first time and how that sold me on this industry. And the reason I, I was kind of reignited into that same feeling when I was walking into Plant Vogel, because the thing about those plants is it's not just one person that's dictating it and going through everything and saying, okay, this goes here, that goes there. It is a team of people. And that's really beautiful to think about. Like it's just genuinely beautiful in some ways to me. And I love that about nuclear power plants is, you know, it took 50 people on the leadership side of things to figure that out. And then it took thousands to execute it, uh, which is just 
incredible to think about. And now it's producing power for millions of homes in Georgia. But when it comes to the struggles and, you know, it is twice the time and twice the budget. I'm not going to deny that. Uh, The difference is, let's talk about how power plants were constructed back in the 70s when nuclear was first introduced. Nuclear power plants were put up in two years within budget everything went according to scale, right? Everything went according to plan back in the 70s when we were building dozens. We currently have 92 reactors prior to these two in in Georgia that were built. There were 92 reactors that were still operating to this day and they still are right now that they were built 50 years ago within two years, within three years. So what changed between 50 years ago and the past decades, right? That's the question that we need to be looking at. And You know, I hate to play this card, but it's the government and the policy and how those processes have changed throughout that time. Um, I also think that moving forward, if we were to build another AP-1000 reactor, which is the type of reactor that Vogel Unit 3 and 4 are, if we were to build more of those, we'd do it better, right? We would already know the loopholes and not, I don't want to say loopholes, but the hoops that you have to jump through, uh, the planning has already been gone through. It's like, it's like any car, you know, you never buy the first model of a car to come out because you know that they've got to try some stuff and get it worked out and get all the kinks thought through. That's the sort of the same process when it comes to watching the construction process of a power plant of a major, major project like that. Uh, but someone's got to take the risk and, and Georgia power and Southern nuclear did that. And now those are going to come online, create cheap electricity for many Georgians to use throughout the next decades. You know, it's not just going to last for five years, like a solar field would it'll last for decades, which is so exciting and so incredible. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I've I've not done the research on this, uh, but my grandfather always says, so I grew up in Dalton, Georgia, which is the carpet slash flooring capital of the world um, in North Georgia, about an hour, hour 15 um, north of Atlanta. And talking about nuclear with him, he's like, oh, yeah, um, one of our service providers in Dalton actually invested money, um, a small percentage into Vogel. And that's why our energy has been so low. Our energy costs have been so low. So I don't know if, if, if that's true. I need to do the research, but um, that is one, one thing yeah. that, you, that you look at. Yeah. And one of the, one of the most fascinating things, you know, I'm going to fully acknowledge it. Economics was never my strong suit. It's so frustrating to me because I feel like so many of my friends in college were like, oh, econ's easy. And I'm like, I just can't grasp this. Um, But one of the most exciting classes I took, it was talking about the levelized cost of electricity. How do you actually charge customers for electricity? How does that all happen? And the process behind it within nuclear is something that I'm not, I'm not going to try to explain, like I said, because I'm not good at econ, but learning about it is so cool. Just the process that they have to go through in comparison to other types of power production is something that's really neat to see, to see how it goes from, you know, these massive billion dollar projects to well, why does it only cost a homeowner such a cheap amount of money to buy from a nuclear power plant then? You know, how does that happen? And they still make money, right? Uh, and it's it's really, really cool to see that. Yeah. And I mean, looking at looking at Vogel, you know, innovation does not happen without failures. I mean, you look at some of the greatest innovations of the history of our world, 
it didn't just happen right away. I mean, there was failures along the way. And eventually you hit that point where you say, we got it. You know, we have something that we can use. So Vogel is a great case study that can be used. Um, like you said, Georgia Power, um, Southern Company, they, they took they took the risk. And, you know, it has gone over budget. It's gone over timeline. But our yeah. world, um, especially in our country, in the U.S., is better because of it. Because now you can take this. And like you're saying, yeah. people know and they know what to expect now if um, they end up producing another facility like like this one. Yeah. And I, I think one thing to consider too, for, for individuals that are frustrated about the cost that I know one thing that a lot of Georgians I've talked to, you know, they bring up Vogel and they're like, yeah, my tax dollars have been going to this, you know, this construction project for the past two decades or whatever it might be. The thing is, is that this is now going to supply high paying jobs, not just jobs, high paying jobs to that community, to people that work there for decades to come. In addition to that, the millions of dollars that these power plants pay in taxes that go back into these communities to help fund schools, to help fund that area is tremendous. I, I That's something that I think people forget about that in the long run, nuclear power plants are giving back to their community in so many ways when it comes to the economics. Uh, and that's and that's so exciting to see because not only as a consumer do you get cheaper electricity, you get more tax dollars and high paying jobs in your community then. Uh, and that's really exciting. Oh, yeah. And we talked about economics and economics in Georgia, especially you're bridging the gap between economics and um, the environment or environmentalism <laughs> because Georgia is bringing so many things in the state, especially in North Georgia, where I'm from. You have big battery manufacturers, you have big solar yeah. manufacturers, now you have plant Vogel. So all of these things are good. They're great for the environment, but what are, what else are they good for? It's the economy. Yeah. You're bringing about jobs, you know, bringing people into the workforce, expanding and growing areas, which is, which is really cool. I mean, a place like Dalton, Georgia, you know, I, I would call it warehouse row because you have warehouses everywhere and they're all yeah. producing flooring or artificial <laughs> turf um, or something in between. And now mm-hmm. we have Q cells in in Georgia, actually in Dalton, it's the Korean um, solar company that has their first U.S. site in Georgia, and it's in Dalton. So now, not only are we the flooring capital of the world, the the carpet capital of the world, but we're becoming this big driver um, in EV and in battery um, and also solar. So yeah. and, and like you're saying, nuclear too with Vogel, first first facility in 30 years. So Grace, I would ask you. Um, we talked about earlier, you know, we talked about Vogel and, and people's perceptions because it's been cost overruns and timeline overruns. But, you know, some nuclear naysayers will go back to these three, um, these three different instances that happened years and years ago, Fukushima, Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. And they're saying we don't want that to happen again. So we're just going to, you know, turn our turn our back to nuclear because it's too dangerous. So. I would ask you, what have you seen when you're talking to people like that, that have that specific point of view? And, you know, what are the challenges of changing public perceptions, you know, surrounding nuclear energy? Yeah. So that is number one, like one of the biggest things that people always, you know, they always, they always sit there and they, I talk about, okay, let's go nuclear. And then people are like, well, what about Chernobyl? And I'm like, wow, you really got me on that one. Um, (laughs) The the truth is not. Uh, So when I look at those three disasters, it's very different circumstances for all three. Um, With Chernobyl specifically, that was a very, very unique circumstance where it was coming out of the cold war. Basically the whole context of that power, Power plant was the the 
Russians wanted to build the biggest, the baddest, the best power plant. They wanted to prove that they were doing better than Americans. So they cut corners when they were building. Now you add that into stressful work environment. You add that into a testing process that should not have been being been performed at that time. That's what happened. You know, I, I highly recommend reading the book Midnight in Chernobyl about this because it goes very in depth about what happened. You know, what were the circumstances when it, when it was all there? Um, and you know what? I also look at it now. Chernobyl's a tourist site right now. You know, I think people think it's a nuclear wasteland and there's mutant animals when in reality it's it's literally a tourist site. You can go there, well, pre pre the Russia and Ukraine invasion, but you could go there and just walk through it. And that's something that is it's takes time for radioactive matters to decay, but once that time passes it's pretty easy and it doesn't take long to reach uh, manageable levels, which is what I think most people don't understand is you've got a serious exponential graph when it comes to like an, an exponential decay when it comes to what radiation levels are. They start very high in circumstances like that, but they're dropping very quickly, very, very quickly. Um, so it's just a manner of, of reaching a, an attainable level. Now, an example of that is, is Fukushima, right? Just recently, they announced that they were releasing some of the water back into the ocean. And oh my gosh, people were like, oh my God, it's the end of the world. They're releasing radioactive water into the ocean. And I'm like, it's really not. When you look at the math of how radioactive that water is, if I drank a gallon of that water that they're releasing back into the ocean, that's equivalent to eating seven bananas worth of radiation. Like, and that's, that's normal. You could eat seven bananas in one sitting. I might question your, your dietary habits, but like, that's normal, you know, in a sense, it's something that the science is there. We have so many incredible, brilliant people that understand these scenarios and nuclear is one of the safest forms of energy production. Yes, we've had, three disasters, but I'm sorry, three disasters globally for 60 years. That's not much. Compare that to just the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. More people died in the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in America than all of nuclear history, I would say. That's something that you just, you can't compare to when it comes to the level of safety and the standard of excellence that we hold our power plants and our people to. And that's something that is so tremendous that I didn't realize until I worked in the field. And, you know, I say this and I know it's hard to believe, but that's something that I, as a co-op, as an intern, I would work on a project and I was like, okay, I'm a co-op. I don't really fully know what I'm doing, but there was a lot of great mentorship that got me to finish this project. Once I did, I did a self-review. Okay. And I said, yes, I feel confident in this. I feel good in it. Then my mentor did a review of it. Then my boss did a review of it. And then we sent it to someone outside of the group that had no idea who I was. They did a review of it. So now we've had four people thoroughly review this project that was getting implemented into 12 different nuclear power plants. And then we all sat down and what we said, we asked ourselves, okay, we feel good about this, but what is worst case scenario if this goes wrong? You know, what is the Chernobyl if this goes wrong, right? And are we ready for it? That was not implemented until the answer to that question was yes. If we're not ready for it, it's not happening. And that's something that is just so incredible. The, the standard of safety, the standard of excellence, the standard of good communication is the result of these, you know, learning from these three incidences. And it's changed the nuclear industry to the point that it is today. I'm not going to say we're not going to see another 
I don't want to say major disaster, but I think that we will see some other things that people will go, well, what about this? You know, but we've figured it out. We understand the risks. We understand the safety. And at this point in time, it's something that we need. And, and I think that a proven track reg- record shows that it is a risk worth taking. In the business world, we talk about having a contingency plan if, you know, shit hits the fan, basically. Mm-hmm. If everything goes to crap, like let's say when COVID happened and the supply chain was just a disaster, I mean, what are we going to do? So having a, having a contingency plan is huge in the business world. Having a contingency plan in a nuclear facility is massive. I mean, that that is like, that, that, that should be on top of the list. Yeah, typically there's more than one contingency plan, right? right? Um, when I was in Vogel, for example, Unit 3, one thing that's very unique about that control panel and that control room where the people are actually pressing the buttons and changing things within the reactor, right? That's what a control room is. You've got all your reactor operators there. One thing that's very unique there is they're using monitors to actually like look at everything. That's not in plants from the 70s because monitors weren't around at the time. It's all still gauges and pressure readings and like things like that. Um, so when I was at Vogel, you know, my first thing when I saw that is like, okay, well, what happens when you have one of those monitors just glitch? Then you're missing an entire screen of readings from what's going on in the reactor. And that's a huge no-no, obviously. You want your reactor operators to understand what's happening in the reactor. Great. They've got two other monitors in the back that they can go look at, you know, and then from there, if those two fail, they've got they've got the gauges and the panels and things like that that they can go to. So there is more than just one contingency plan. There is quite literally plan A all the way to plan Z with contingency plans. So. (laughs) Right. So, uh, uh, again, I'm bouncing off this conversation, you know, with with the stigma that that's been associated with nuclear. And I think a lot of a lot of people are afraid of the term radiation as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, radiation exposure. And, you know, again, through research, um, I I saw you talk about um, how you've experienced more radiation through through flying on an airplane um, through Yes America travels than anything else in your life. And and a lot of people don't understand that, you know, when you're in in an airplane, you know, you are you are exposed to to radiation and radiation is something that people are afraid of nuclear. Some people are afraid of, but I think it all goes back to education and people understanding what it really is, because a lot of people, you know, will, will hear, hear a word and just think negative negatively about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things I really try to do specifically with radiation is it's it is literally you are radioactive. Like radiation is everywhere around us. It's in our phones, it's in our bodies, like everything. And I I mentioned, you know, at the beginning of this, I talked about granite countertops, bananas, exit signs, smoke detectors, all of those things are quite like a little bit extra radioactive than what normally is enough that it's kind of a fun fact, right? To point out, because that's something that you see in your everyday life. Every time you step out into the sun, you're getting exposed to radiation. If you're on an airplane, you're getting a actually a pretty decent radiation exposure rate. I'd say that that is the most exposure that mm, an average human will go through is, is when they get on an airplane. Um, and I even go to nuclear power plants. And like I said, I've been exposed to, like you had said there, I've been exposed to more radiation from the 90,000 miles of air travel I've been doing instead of... The, the amount of power plants I've been to, which is now five or six of them. I've been to a decent amount, some of them multiple times, um, and I've never had problems, right? So it's a very normal thing. It's a part of our everyday lives. 
it's not something to be afraid of. And there's, it's just something to be understood. And that's all there is to it. So the final segment we will do on here, it's, it's pretty basic and it's pretty generic. Um, so just bear with me, but um, I call it advice, just your opinion on different things. So the first question, you know, we talk about sustainability and how broad it is, but I always ask the guests, you know, why is sustainability important? Um, we could say in your case, why is nuclear important? But, you know, mm-hmm. I would ask you why, why, in your opinion, is sustainability important? <laughs> well, so why for me, sustainability, I think we I grew up in a world that I look at it and I'm like, man, am I going to make am I going to have grandkids? <laughs> like, it's a very valid question. Like, is there going to be a planet for gra- for me to have grandkids with? Like, I don't know. Um, I think I'll make it through having kids myself, but at that point, okay, let's talk about pollution. That's a huge problem. Let's talk about global warming. That's a huge problem. Let's talk about electricity demands. There are so many problems and things that at the end of the day, I think we did have this massive spurt in innovation. We have this massive increase in technology over the past, you know, probably I'd say 60 years, right? From the start of the light bulb all the way up to modern day, that's more than 60 years. But um, we haven't realized the side effects of that yet. And right now, we're seeing it. And that's why sustainability is important, because we only have one Earth. We better make sure we treat it respectfully, because you know what? I'm a person that right now, when I talk about climate change, when I talk about global warming, yes, it's going to happen at a natural rate. But right now, it's happening at a faster rate. And I hate to tell you... I think the planet will win this battle. I think that the planet will win hands down in comparison to the human race, right? Uh, so to me, that's why sustainability is important. We've got we've to take care of our home. Uh, we've got to start taking care of the environment around us because we might not have places to build houses, places to farm land, places to just survive and do the bare minimum for us as a, as a, a, you know, a, a primate species, right? Uh, and that's something that I think we really, really need to be focusing on is is how can we start living sustainably, not just in our everyday lives, but in everything around us as well. So one of the one of the I, I would say quotes, I can't remember if this was from a family member um, from one of your family members or not, but um, that you that you had on one of your Miss America uh, pages, I guess. Mm-hmm. was uh, in punctuality breeds disorganization. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> uh, could, you, could you expand on that and talk about the importance of that quote? Yeah, you know, that's actually my dad as well. Um, so funny enough that it's my dad again. Honestly, yeah. that really just comes from just it, when you run late, you know, all of a sudden, oh, well, you're apologizing to that person and everything just like gets disorganized. You're not prepared. You're not ready for everything. Like it just, that's really what that was, was a childhood lesson for us. And it also taught us really big words when you're a seven-year-old kid. Uh, but I think there is a lot of truth too in, in applications in the sustainability aspect that you bring it up now, uh, where it's it, the time to act is can't be too late. It's got to be on time. And right now, I think we are playing catch up. I, I think we are late to start responding. I think we're late to prioritizing this. And, you know, like I said, I, I it sounds so morbid and so end of the worldly, but it's a really valid question. One of my favorite movies is Interstellar. And mm-hmm. I think Interstellar portrays what could happen to the planet in a very real way. And unfortunately, we didn't have a black hole that just appeared in the sky. That's what that movie is about. And they travel into it and space travel and all that stuff. But um, 
it's something that we've got to take care of the planet we're on. We've got to start taking that step in the right direction. And it's time that it becomes a priority. It's been talked about for my entire life. And I'm so sick of talking and I'd like to see action at this point. So people laugh at me. You talk about Interstellar. The movie that I bring up is a is a Disney animated movie, Wall-E. So yeah. in the movie, you, know, you have yeah. a, you have this world and this robot is kind of on Earth by by itself. Mm-hmm. Wally is the name of the robot, and there's just so much trash and waste on this Earth that people have had to take a ship and go to a different planet or go into space. I can't remember; it's been so long. Mm-hmm. But that's another that's a, that's an animated movie. Obviously, it's it's, it's fiction, but. It is something that could happen if we don't find solutions in sustainability, right? With with landfills, yeah. if we keep filling landfills up um, and using all the space, then we're going to have trash that we can't, you know, run out of um, and that we can't get out of. So um, that's another movie that's that's interesting. Um, but the final question I'll ask you, Grace, is, you know, we talked about you breaking barriers. You're breaking barriers as Miss America, breaking barriers as being um, a nuclear engineering student. Not only a nuclear engineering student, but you're a Division One athlete and Miss America and a classic violinist, and you know you have incredible grades. So I mean, you've done so many, so many things. But for all the the young girls that might be listening, and I know you get this question probably a lot, but the young girls listening that you know they they might be growing up and not really thinking about a career in STEM or thinking about nuclear because they're <laughs> they're young and they might not understand what, what nuclear is. What would your advice to them be um, as they grow up in in a field, like you said, 13% of nuclear is women right now, um, mm-hmm. and we, we really want to radically shift that. So um, it's going to be the younger generation, I think, that does that. Um, so what would your advice be to them, um, young girls, as they grow up and as they're trying to break barriers just like you did? I keep coming back to just find joy in life. You know, I think that's more important than breaking barriers and more important than, you know, having what might be an externally successful uh, life or career or whatever it might be. I think that that to have to have a good life, I just really think that comes from within. My biggest piece of advice that I wish I learned sooner was stop trying to please others and just live the life I want to live, right? Why do I care what other people think of me? Why do I care if they think it's weird that I'm Miss America and a nuclear engineer? Why do I care if they think it's weird that I do pageantry in general, right? I, I think that's something that is a huge was a huge barrier for me personally to overcome. And I think that applies to more than just you know, more than just sustainable, but more than just sustainability, more than just nuclear, more than just, you know, like I said, breaking barriers. It's just about who who do you want to be and just do good in the world, right? If it brings you joy, do good in the world. That's really the most important thing. And I think that that's something it applies to every industry and every industry needs that. But yeah, I think it, it just comes back to fulfillment um, and, and really, like you're saying, having joy in life and finding finding your worth, not your worth, but finding your place in the world, I would say. Mm-hmm. So, so Grace, um, again, thank you so much for joining us. Th- this has been an incredible conversation. I've learned a lot on, on nuclear. Um, <laughs> I mean, your, your conversation on, on fission and how you broke that down with an analogy, that's something that I'll use now because it's, it's for it. taken a complex topic and, and simplified it. And I think that's really valuable. But again, thank you so much for coming on the Green Hour um, and, and taking the time with us today. I appreciate it a ton, Preston. Thank you.